Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What to make in the words of Jared Dillian of the most exciting, boringest markets ever. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, May 11, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap newsletter. Jared, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, big picture. Where are we? What do you see happening? What matters most right now? You know, it's funny. I wrote about this in my newsletter, how this is the boringest, excitingest markets of all time. We have all kinds of shit going on. We got banks blowing up. We got the debt ceiling. We got, I mean, you name it. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And we have a realized volatility of zero. Like we're basically unch every single day. And I've, you know, in my career, I've had, I've lived through periods where volatility was very low, like 2005, 2006, the market was moving like 10, 20 basis points a day. It was the most, but it really was boring. There was nothing going on at the time. And now there's all kinds of things going on. And there's this big divergence because the market isn't moving, at least the stock market. There's a little bit of excitement elsewhere. There's excitement in the yeah. bond market, but yeah. Yeah, two's tens right now, upside down, 50 basis points. You made this point in your newsletter as well, the idea uh, that the debt ceiling debacle has not yet been priced into markets. And you asked this theoretical, hypothetical question, is this the calm before the storm in the S&P 500? I think, so first of all, stocks do all kinds of unpredictable things. Like in linear thinking usually gets you in trouble, okay? So linear thinking is, the debt ceiling is coming up in three weeks. The U.S. might default. Stocks should go down. That's linear thinking. And usually linear thinking doesn't work. Having said that, I think, I mean, gosh, you know, if we actually have a default or something, then, yeah, I mean, stocks should be down a lot and nothing's going on. If you want to talk about the debt ceiling for a little bit, um, you know, I've been pretty vocal on Twitter and elsewhere saying that the probability of a default is much, much higher than people think. Um, I think the Republicans believe that they were elected to force this issue. Uh, I mean, you know, not to get too much into politics, but if I were the Republican Party, I would uh, vote to raise a debt ceiling because I don't think that the public really understands how the national debt affects their daily lives, even if it does. Um, and we really haven't gotten to the point where there's enough pain about the debt that there's any political will to do anything about it. So I think this is kind of a political dead end for the Republicans. But I do believe they're going to force the issue. Trump last night 
in the CNN town hall said he would favor a default in order to force spending cuts. And I think that's what we're trending towards. I mean, McCarthy and Biden have met a couple of times. They've made, they've made absolutely no progress. It's three weeks to go. They're still miles apart. And I think this is, you know, look what, look where four week bills are trading. Four week bills are at uh five forty four. You know, there's, it's this huge, huge spike on the curve. Yeah, that's extremely well said, Jared. And uh, you've made so many interesting points that we could talk for the whole 30 minutes about just what you said in the uh, first two minutes of this show. I mean, first of all, I love this idea that linear thinking gets you into trouble. Systems thinking, uh, I think, has been very influential for me uh, in terms of seeing things in terms of feedback loops when you have, uh, for example, headwinds that you would think would push down the value of stock if it causes central banks uh, to go in uh, and take ultra accommodative monetary policy stances can actually drive the value of stocks up. George Soros has talked about this in the terms of reflexivity, but it's such an important point. On the debt ceiling here, I want to get a little bit more detail on this. And one of the challenges I think that people who are basically finance guys like you and me uh, have when we look at these issues is that they're not, they're not rational, they're not logical, they're political, which is exactly what you said. I guess my question to you, if we could, you know, pretend the cameras weren't on for a second here and just like talk about it. When I look at this, I think, What's the incentive for the Republican Party to actually have a default on this? Isn't it more in their interest to keep the pressure maximal on the White House by just continuing to kick the can down the road uh, with various extensions so that there isn't a default and they maintain that leverage? I don't know. It's just sort of my not a political guy thinking about it. Uh, and the other question I have, and I'm curious if you have any insight on this, is to what extent uh, does Kevin McCarthy have the capacity to whip the votes in his own party to do his will. In other words, is this something that can be looked at through a rational actor model? Do the Republicans act as a unified party under the leader? Uh, or, or is this something that it's a fractious majority to attempt to maintain? I, I don't know the answers to any of those questions. Yeah, I mean, look, like politics is, is a science and people, you know, people study this in great detail. And I have some subscribers to my newsletter who live and work in D.C., and they live in this world and they understand the nuances of the democratic position and the Republican position a lot better than I do. And, you know, would it be, is it more optimal for the Republicans to kick the can? And, you know, I, I mean, I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, all I know is that, you know, us one year CDS are pricing in basically a 4% probability of default, which is the highest, basically ever in history right. and you know there's we're we're completely at an impasse here so and with regard to your question about you know whether they can whip the republicans i mean the 206 votes like i think it is possible that if you get down to the wire on the debt ceiling it is possible that some republicans could cross over and vote to raise the debt ceiling rather than cause either a government shutdown or a default or something like that i mean there there's a lot of one of the things that's really interesting to me is that there's so many different ways this can play out. There's so much unknown. There's so much uncertainty. And I'm looking in stocks are on day after day after day. And it really, it just makes no sense at all. Like after Trump's comments on the town hall last night, I thought we'd wake up down like 30 or 40 handles in the spoons. Nope. So. Yeah, by the way, we should also point out, this is not the first debt ceiling crisis we've been through. 1995, 2011, 2013, uh, we've seen this movie before. We've seen this movie before, but I would say this is the first time we've gone through the crisis 
where the sides are so far apart. I mean, basically we have, you know, Biden's budget has a $2 trillion deficit on $6 trillion in revenue. Um, it's, it's absolutely enormous. And the Republicans are, you know, the other side and they're just so far apart, but there's also the animosity. I mean, if you think about, you know, Biden, the, his tweets, he calls them MAGA Republicans. There was a press conference where he called Peter Ducey from Fox news. He called him a stupid son of a bitch. Like there's just, like, there's a lot of animosity here. You're talking about people that really have no interest in cooperating and genuinely dislike each other. And this is the backdrop for which they're supposed to have this negotiation. So, yeah. You know, one thing we don't do here on Real Vision Daily Briefing is express our own political preferences, but we do talk about what the potential implications of varying policy options are. Who loses more if there is a default? I mean, my gut is that the administration gets blamed just because, you know, that's the way Washington works. When you're in power, you get blamed. Fairly well, or unfairly, mostly unfairly, I would say. We should we rule. should spend some time talking. I mean, you and I together, we should sort of like work this out because I've really spent the last two weeks trying to like strategize about what actually would happen if there were a default. So let's say we, you know, we get to June 1st, we're, we're technically in default and four week bills that are supposed to mature the day later are now no longer trading at par. They're trading at some discount to par and then money market funds across the country break the buck. But rather than break the buck like they did in 2008, what I think will happen is that they will gate redemptions. Like you won't be able to get your money out. Um, and we're talking about government money market funds, not prime or you know, CP or stuff like that. So I think it is possible that you know the whole money market industry, and look, if the treasury is not having conversations with money market funds at this point about what to do in this scenario, they're nuts. Like, I think, they, I think they'll probably gate redemptions. I think that's the, probably the most likely scenario. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Literally, while you were speaking, I got a text message that popped up on my screen from a buddy of mine uh, in finance who spends a lot more time in Washington, D.C. than I do. Uh, and he says, I think they can keep paying Treasury interest and principal while they stop paying vendors. So, I mean, to me, there's just a lot of uncertainty here oh, yeah. in uncharted waters. We don't know what remedial action the administration might take uh, to try and stave off a, a collapse in the potential value of U.S. Treasury. I can't even believe I'm saying those words. It sounds weird. The other funny thing about this, and it's not funny, but I, I find humor in this, is that, you know, in, in the last six months or so, retail investors have just piled into T-bills because, number one, they earn more than uh, bank accounts. Number two, the stock market was a mess. They didn't want to invest in stocks. They wanted to invest in something safe. So they piled into these safe T-bills 
And now right. these safety bills are probably the riskiest thing out there. So, I mean, that what a through the looking glass world, Jared, to say T-bills are the riskiest <laughs> thing. Out there. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to even get your head around. It's like bizarro world. Yeah. Uh, so, Jared, what else are you looking at in markets? What's caught your eye? Uh, gosh. Um, what has caught my eye? Well, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff, a lot of my ideas from, you know, I was on probably three weeks ago. A lot of my ideas are still sort of in progress. Um, you know, I'm bullish on energy. Um, you know, I think that, um, a lot of people are, are, are spending a lot of time looking at commodities and looking for a bounce of commodities, including oil. And I don't think you're going to get that bounce until we have some kind of inflationary impulse. So when right. I say inflationary impulse, I mean like, you know, kind of like what we had during the pandemic when we were basically handing out free money, right? Well, that was an inflationary impulse. So what would happen this time around that would cause that? Maybe the debt ceiling. Maybe, maybe the Fed directly monetizes T-bills. Maybe they print money to pay off short-term government debt. I'm just, I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm just doing like a Monte Carlo simulation here. But that, uh, that, that would be an inflationary impulse. So, you know, I, I like investing in commodities. I like investing in commodities from the long side. I find it easier to be in the long side than the short side. And I've been waiting to do this. And until you get that inflationary impulse, it just doesn't really work. So boy, direct unsterilized intervention by the central bank directly in the debt would certainly be inflationary. Talking of which, I want to bring up a clip from Steno Signals, will inflation allow central banks to ease? This is exactly the point that we've been discussing here. This, of course, is Andreas Steno Larsen. On today's show, May 11th, let's take a look at the clip. The 2020s here, uh, and that is why I've made this um, chart where I've overlaid the current inflation picture um, with the inflation picture from the 1970s. So if you compare today uh, to the 1970s, almost a picture-perfect uh, overlay chart right now. Uh, the decline in inflation follows the decline in inflation that you saw through the 70s when M2 started to decline. Uh, but um, yeah, buckle up because we may have another wave ahead if this uh, analogy to the 1970s uh, works. Uh, what could drive this? Well, as soon as inflation disappears over the next few quarters, which I find very likely, we may get that exact political response uh, response uh, from, from the pandemic again. Fiscal stimulus, direct transfers, checks to each and every household if the recession hits. And then we're back to expanding the money base at a, t uh, at a pace that um, is, is basically out of control. Sobering words from Andreas Steno Larsen uh, and that chart. Uh, that he showed sort of lining up the current period with the 1970s, I thought was quite sobering. Now, I know people are going to say, look, you're overfitting the data. You're finding a, you know, a, an arbitrary start point to align so that the curves align. But the reality is, for me, the most important takeaway from that chart isn't the exact fit of the data. It's the fact that you got a double dip on this inflation. You had the rise, the drop, and then the rise again to a higher point than the first peak. That, to me, I think is Andreas's uh, biggest takeaway there. And it's a sobering one, Jared. Yeah, he's, I mean, that's, that's kind of his hobby horse. Like I like Andreas and I, I agree. I actually agree with him on a lot of stuff. Um, and I do believe that we're going to have a second inflationary impulse. I think it's going to happen. 
And I think the Fed will have to respond. And I think, you know, and look, this is not, you know, imminently, uh, maybe 2025, maybe 2026. But at some point in the future, we're going to have 10% on tenure notes. Like that's going to happen. Um, 10% on tenure oh, yeah. notes. Yeah, in the next couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, right now we're having this disinflationary impulse. Um, but, what, you know, the, the, I, I get sick of saying it because I say it all the time. But inflation is really about psychology. Okay. And um, we haven't killed the inflation psychology. We, we haven't squashed it yet. Like, look, I went to Chipotle today for lunch. Actually, it's funny because I haven't been to Chipotle in like six months. I got, not that anybody cares about what I eat for lunch, but I got uh, a bowl with double chicken and queso in a large drink for $19.40. And this is in Myrtle Beach. Like, this is the lowest cost of living area in the country. Like, $20 for Chipotle. People expect price increases. Even though inflation has slowed down, people still have that inflationary mindset. They still expect price increases. And that's why we're going to have another wave of inflation in the future. Right. Because it becomes a feedback loop. It gets priced in. You start the expectation and the expectation becomes reality. Hey, yep. listen, this, this work table that I use for my desk is six feet long. When I moved into this apartment, I have a little less space in this room than I did where I had it last time. So I decided to get the five foot version of this desk, just ordered it from Home Depot. This desk was 103 bucks, six feet long. The new desk, five feet long, was 225 <laughs> exact same desk from the exact same vendor. It's doubled since I bought it, whatever it was, five, six years ago right before the yep. pandemic. I mean, you see this everywhere. You see this. And I was talking with uh, Brian, our producer here. I went to order a, a chicken salad with a uh, Greek chicken salad with uh, grilled chicken over the top, right? $31 with delivery fees. I was like, I I'm not ordering that. I'm just going to go out and scrounge in the neighborhood to see what I can find cheaper. I mean, the price of food uh, has just been insanely, insanely accelerating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, I have a decent amount of money. There's really no reason for me to worry about the cost of food. Like, it doesn't affect my life that much. But I find myself economizing, like, because it's it's so expensive. Like, I used to go out to, I'd go out to a restaurant for lunch, and it would be, like, between $15, $20. And now if I go out, it's, like, $25 to $30. So there's, like, a bagel shop in town, and I go to the bagel shop, and I get a bagel for 8 bucks. And I do that like four times a week because it's cheaper than, you know, spending 25, 30 bucks on lunch every day, which I just, I can't bring myself to do. So. Yeah. It's also interesting. The, the way that we measure it, the, the kind of uh, month over month, like for example, today, wholesale prices uh, up for the month of April, 0.2%. Uh, you know, it sounds like a relatively moderate increase, but the problem is they're compounding effects. And when you see the price rise uh, you know, when you have these uncontrolled bouts of inflation, uh, seven, eight, nine percent, uh, it starts to become a cumulative effect, and then it squeaks through the system uh, at the varying steps. And by the way, food costs, particularly prepared foods, you have not just the underlying value of the inputs, but you also have the labor uh, pushing prices higher. Yeah, we haven't even talked about real estate. I don't know if you want to talk about real estate on the daily briefing today, but. I got to tell you, you know, there. I sort of went to war with some people on Twitter. This was like four months ago. You had some people on Twitter that were posting all this housing doom stuff because interest rates went up and they thought the housing market was going to crash. Not only is it not crashed, it is on fire. 
like here in Myrtle Beach, but also in New Jersey or in the New York area, lots of places in the country, it, real estate is still, even with mortgage rates at six, six and a half, seven percent, real estate is still strong. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many factors here. This is not a normal cyclically driven market, at least in my view. We're seeing significant secular changes happen. The nature of work, I worry a lot about CRE, commercial real estate, particularly on the office space side. I know most of the uh, of the uh, CMBS is uh, in the form of multifamily housing, but you know, the nature of work has changed very dramatically since before the pandemic. I wonder if to a certain extent, the red hot housing market we see might not be people uh, spending larger portions of their income because they need work from home space. These things are very, very difficult to gauge while you're going through them. Yeah, I do think, I do think the commercial real estate issue is a little overblown. Um, it's also, in, in terms of my knowledge, like, I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't really know very much about commercial real estate, but I am old enough and we're about the same age. You know, I remember in 1990, 1991, that there was a bubble in commercial real estate in office space. Yeah. Like if, if you were driving anywhere in suburban America, you would see a five or six story office tower that just went up. Like there was way, a huge amount of overconstruction. And then you had the SNL crisis and that's what caused the recession of 1990, 1991. I don't think what's happening today in commercial real estate is anything on the scale of what happened back then. Yeah, I remember that period because my dad was doing some building, some development during that time, and it was absolutely brutal. Uh, let me throw this one other wild card out there uh, that I wanted to get your view on, talking about secular shifts and the nature of the economy. I want to talk a little bit about AI. Is there a risk, Jared, that we see commodities-driven price inflation while simultaneously deflation in the labor markets? I read this article in the Wall Street Journal today. I'm not sure if you saw it, about law firms. There was a Google study uh, that showed that AI over the next, I forget what the time horizon was, five to 10 years could reduce the amount of labor required in the legal profession by 44%. Now, even if that number is wildly overstated and it's half that, my God, can you imagine what's going to happen uh, to the career destruction in that space? And believe me, it's coming to others. We're looking at version 0.0.1 here. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how to make money off of it. Like it, there's... I think AI is as significant of an innovation as the internet was in the late 90s. Um, and the, in the internet in the late 90s obviously sparked one of the biggest investment booms of all time. And what I've been trying to figure out is how, what is the best way to play this? And, you know, I think the, out, the recent outperformance of some of the FANG names are kind of, excuse me, are kind of being caused by AI, but... Meaning market perception that they're going to be leaders in the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sorry about that. I just kind of... <laughs> you know, the, the, one, the one big difference, uh, at least for right now, uh, in terms of what I've seen versus the, you know, the 2000 dot com era, which I was uh, working on Wall Street as one of the young guys back in those days, and this is that these large language models require massive investment. It's the Googles of the world. It's the, it's the uh, you know, ch the 
the um, the companies like Microsoft that are going to have the ability uh, to have the resources to do it uh, may be very good for Sam Altman. In those days, uh, you know, you could the idea was that anyone with a with a an, a good idea, maybe like a halfway decent idea and a dream, two or three of their buddies could pile in, create a new company, uh, spin it up, and try and do something with it. I don't know. Uh, if the maybe it's just the back end of the large language models, maybe there's service providers that can be built on top of that to have those businesses. But I, I just don't know what the future looks like. Well, it should be another productivity increase like we had in the late 90s. And we, we had a massive increase in productivity back then, which right. was deflationary. So maybe that helps. Um, you know, I can tell you that uh, I was a professor from 2013 to 2018, and I'm starting up again in the fall and i used to give written assignments and now i'm kind of stuck like you know how do i deal with this right so. right yeah i guess the question is who gets those productivity gains uh do the productivity gains kind of accrue uh to the uh the shareholders of google and microsoft uh or are they things that uh you know you and i can start our own ai startup and uh you know build a business with very little capital very little investment i don't know i do have a question for you and i've always kind of wondered this so you can go into chat GPT and ask it to write a demand letter, right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, you still need the letterhead. Like, you still need the letterhead of a law firm, don't you? Like, it's kind of useless unless it's an actual attorney sending the demand letter. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think that the idea is that most people who are looking at this think that there's going to be tremendous cost savings, for example, uh, law firms will be able to uh, do things much more efficiently. And so what it winds up happening is you don't eliminate lawyers, but if you have a pool of 10, maybe you only need three, maybe you need two and a half, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the, that's the challenge that I see. I don't think entire fields are going to disappear overnight, but they're going to become much more efficient in terms of labor efficiency. Uh, and that's going to drive down costs, but it's going to push a lot of people into the unemployment rules. Yeah. Well, you know, we survived the dot-com bubble. We'll, we'll survive this. So. <laughs> Veterans and survivors of the dot-com bubble. Hey, Jerry, we got a lot of questions. Uh, let's do a quick speed round, see if we can get through some of them. First one comes to us from David Sims uh, from the Real Vision website. How does gold perform if the debt ceiling is resolved, especially with the predicted reduction in liquidity, i.e. refill of general AC Treasury insurance? By the way, I should say uh, COMEX Gold on my screen trading 2020, $2,020 an ounce right now. You know, I don't, I, first of all, just, you know, like I said, linear thinking, debt ceiling gets resolved, gold should go down, right? But I, I kind of think it depends how it's resolved, okay? Um, like in, in, the, in, the, in the scenario that I mentioned earlier about direct monetization, like that would be a situation in which the debt ceiling is resolved, but gold should like go up 25% on a rope. You know, so I think it's, right. I think it really comes down to how it's resolved is the question. Very interesting. Uh, here's a question from YouTube. Is this it? Similar question, similar topic. Jared's thoughts on this gold pullback. Seems like gold is gr a great alternative slash currency diversifier in an environment like this, making a similar point to you just made. Well, gold is spending a lot of time above 2000, which used to be resistance. The all-time high is about 2060. Um, you know, I it, it looks to me like it's consolidating and waiting for another move higher. And the other thing is, is that I get a lot of questions from my subscribers about like, okay, 
where, what is the safe place to hang out during the debt ceiling? Right. So right. it's not T-bills. Maybe it's bonds because in 2011, bonds actually went up during the debt downgrade. Meaning, but, meaning 10 plus years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, probably not stocks. Probably not. I mean, you go through the list of like all the, all the possible safe havens where you could be. And gold is probably the best place to be during the debt ceiling. Seriously. So. Interesting. Uh, here's another question from David Sims. What do you think happens to U.S. bonds and the dollar? Do both rally counterintuitively? Great question, David. Well, I don't really, I don't, I don't know that I have opinion on the correlation between the dollar and bonds. I will say that the dollar is looking a little bottomy here. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if the dollar had a little bit of an uptick. And, and I will also say totally unrelated that there's a lot of, I looked at the spec positioning in bonds the other day and we're pretty much at record short levels in bonds, which kind of leads me to believe that bonds go up. So I think it is possible for the dollar to go up and bonds to go up independently. I think that's possible. Let me ask you this question. This one comes to us from Roger Bose from the Real Vision website. Everyone says we should raise the debt ceiling, but when does the government get serious about the national debt? This is a great question. One of the things I love about this show, Jared, is that we uh, don't take sides in political issues, but we try and explore what some of the things that are happening are from both views. We talked about the risks of the default scenario. Uh, what about the view of what Republicans are saying here, which is spending in this country is completely out of control and it's untenable? That's really the question that Roger's asking. What do you think? Well, I mean, I agree with the Republicans, but nothing is going to change until there becomes a political will to change. Now, back, picture this, 1984, I was in fourth grade, okay? And in fourth grade, we used to do current events. So we would have like a film strip, right? Literally like this strip of film and I they would put it this. in a projector and we would do these current events and week after week after week, all they could talk about was the debt. That's all they talked about was deficit. Reagan was president. We had a deficit to GDP of about six or 7%. The nominal value of the deficits were about 180 billion. And people were freaking out about the debt and they continued to, to freak out about the debt into the Bush senior administration. And he raised taxes from 28 to 31%. And he was a one-term president. And then Clinton became president and they were still freaking out about the debt. And his goal was to balance the budget. He raised taxes to 39.6%. And then after the investment boom we had and all the capital gains, we actually balanced the budget in 2000. But from 1980 to 2000, the debt was a really, really big issue in politics and everybody cared about it. And now nobody cares about it. Nobody yeah. understands how the debt affects their daily lives. Like if you explain to somebody, look, we went into debt 3 trillion during the pandemic and handed it out. And because we did that, interest rates are 50 basis points higher. And because of that, you're paying an extra $500 a month on your mortgage. That's how it personally affects you. But people don't understand. It's just an abstraction. It's an abstraction. So until people start to feel pain and they start to make a connection between that pain and the debt, nothing is going to change. This is just rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. 
Yeah, that's so well said and so sharply explained. Jared, I could do this show with you today for about three hours, but unfortunately we're out of time. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with from today's show. Yeah, I, I guess I guess what I would say is, um, you know, the debt ceiling is the biggest issue. Uh, I don't think it's getting enough press as it probably should. I think there are dangers. I think if you have, if you have money in a money market fund, you might want to get it out while you can um, in case it gets gated. I think that is, I think that is a possibility. So uh, only the paranoid survive. Jared, you freaked me out here in the last like 30 seconds. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Jared Dillian, it's always a pleasure when you do this. Always a great show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow at 4 p.m. with Professor Dennis Lockhart. This will be an extended show, and the second half will be available only to Real Vision members. So if you're not a member, please sign up in the link in the description. You won't want to miss out on that. Of course, you can always go to realvision.com. See you all tomorrow. Have a great day. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.